God, as, as I opened your word this week and was, was reading about this small little place, Nazareth, that you grew up, um, I don't know, I think I just started seeing the world a little different. The, the places uh, where we grew up or places where we live and the, the people that we live with. And um, God, I pray that this morning you'll give us eyes to see and understand both the world you made and, and most importantly, you and how you intend to save the world and, and rescue us, I think, ultimately from our, our selfishness and, and allow us just to come back into a saving relationship with you. So, God, I, I pray that as that's available this morning, we'll say yes to it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This week, uh, as I was driving my car... I was doing what I do most times when I drive my car, which is to listen to NPR. And you know we're a non-denominational church because we can talk about NPR during the sermon. Um, so I was listening to NPR, and, and one of the, the short stories that they shared on it was about uh, a man... I guess two men it was, it was dealing with in this story, uh, were separated at birth. It wasn't just separated, they were switched at birth. So, um, so two babies, they went to the, a home of somebody that wasn't actually their parent. And, um, and it, they found this out because um, one went to a pool. The one who grew up in the poor home uh, with a, a mother, single mother on welfare, grew up, became a truck driver, and ended up suing the hospital for lots of money because uh, he felt like he deserved a better um, uh, you know, status in life because of getting switched. The one who uh, went to the wealthy family ended up becoming, uh, becoming a, a president of a real estate company and became incredibly wealthy simply because they were switched at birth and, and one was given opportunity and the other one was not. That's, that's, what, um, that's what the story said. Uh, if it's at all comforting, only 28,000 babies a year in the U.S. are switched at birth, but most of them are returned to their right parents. Um, and... <laughs> The last statistics they had for it was in 96, so I'm hoping it got a little better since then. But out of, out of 4 million babies a year, uh, 28,000 sounds like a lot. Um, <laughs> so just keep track of your baby, okay? That's, <laughs> that's the first moral of the story <laughs> today. So... So obviously, the one who was poor, who decided to sue the hospital, did that because if he had the choice, he would have chosen to be raised in a wealthy home. If he had the choice. What would you choose? Would you choose poverty or would you choose wealth? And I think, I think that really speaks to the sermon we're going to talk about today as we talk about uh, where Jesus was from. Uh, last week we talked about Bethlehem, which was an insignificant place. This week we're going to talk about Nazareth, 
which is a place of, of rejection. And, and in John 1.14, uh, there's this beautiful verse. became flesh and blood, or God became flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood. God became flesh and blood and, and moved into the neighborhood. And, and today, we're going to see what neighborhood he moved into. Uh, God's choice of living arrangements, which is incredibly significant. Because where you live, oftentimes, means the people you're going to associate with, right? The place you're going to go to school, in our case. If you talk to somebody, why did you move there? Well, it had a good school for my kids, or it, had, it was close to the mountains, or it had some acreage, or the neighborhood was nice, Right? So why did God choose to move into Nazareth of all places? So we're going to look really quickly at, at the people, the place, and, and the prophecy that brought him there. Uh, and then this strange concept of the choice of rejection, I think, is at the heart of this. Um, the first is the place, which really speaks to Uh, how incredibly beautiful, accurate, historical the Bible is. Um, So Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and and Nazareth in ancient documents had never really been spoken of before. The first time you actually read about Nazareth anywhere else other than the Bible is in 4th century. Um, And so basically it was a place completely not on the map at all. And and in archaeological digs, they found it, and and as they, they looked at it, it's this small town... In, the, in this little basin with, surrounded by mountains of about 200 people, right? Nazareth of Jesus' time, 200 people, this agricultural town that no one really wanted to live in, right? A place where no one wanted to live, and this is the place where Jesus attached himself to. The rest of his life, Jesus would be known not just as Jesus, but is Jesus of Nazareth. Right? It's, just, it's so powerfully shown in, in John 19, 19, where, where Jesus gets crucified, and on the top of the cross it says, Jesus of Nazareth. Right? It's, this, it's this identity he bore his whole life. This is the place he's from. Right? When, when blind people or people who wanted healing would call out, they'd cry, Jesus of Nazareth, save me, heal me. When, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was still referred to as Jesus from Nazareth. When you have Paul on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts, and he gets knocked off his horse, and, and he says, who is this? And it says, he says, I'm, Jesus says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you've been persecuting. Right? So Nazareth, this place that's completely insignificant, this 200-person town that people just, and we'll talk about this some more, people just didn't really feel comfortable with. It's this place that Jesus has attached himself Two. That's the place. That's Nazareth. A couple of years ago in a sermon, I compared Nazareth to Gorst, I think. And, um, and imagine that, right? I, as we go into to people, right? The people that were of Nazareth, there's this real interesting saying that you find in the book of John where um, where the, a couple of disciples of Jesus were, were collecting other people to come and follow Jesus. Uh, and they go to 
to one of, one of uh, the prospective disciples, and they say, hey, you got to come check it out. This guy who Moses prophesied about a long time ago, he's finally come, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and the guy they went to talk to about it said this. He simply said, Nazareth, he goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? It's like this old saying that you find here, like, like nothing good comes from this place. It's no good. And, and you find, as people write about Nazareth, that it's, it's literally this kind of backwoods place that no one liked. And, and the reason why is, is because the people, because it was half Gentiles, or what they call half pagan, right? Half Gentiles, half Israelites. And they had this really, it says, this rude way of speaking. And so it's like this backwater place that like didn't speak right, right? Maybe didn't look right. And, and this is where... This is where Jesus is coming to identify with the people of this place. And I think it's so beautiful because Jesus came to what? To absolutely identify with not just Israel, but with everyone. And so this is the place that Jesus came to. The people who rubbed off on him while he grew up. A place where people were rejected and he embraced from a very young age, their rejection. How does someone grow up in a place like that? Well, it says in Luke 2, it says, There Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. So here you have in this, this backwards place, this, this little guy, right? He spent... This is, this is what blew me away the most, is, is this small, insignificant town of 200 people, guess how much of Jesus' life was spent there? 90% of Jesus' life. Right? Last week we talked about insignificance of Bethlehem. I mean, talk about insignificance of the place you were born, raised. 90% of Jesus' life was in Nazareth, the place no one wanted to go because it was, it was full of Gentiles and Jews and people didn't really know their identity. And, and that's where Jesus is growing up, right? He spent 30 years there. He only spent three years actually in public ministry. That's incredible. And that is where, where Jesus decided to place himself, right? In the, moving into prophecy, in Matthew 2 it says that the prophets spoke about Jesus going there. And, and I was thinking about this and I thought... Uh, you know, maybe this prophecy happened hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago. And, and you think, like, when it came to the time for Jesus to go and become a baby and, and to live for 30 years in this place, if Jesus wasn't like, like, can we do some scouting, <laughs> maybe around Jerusalem or, you know, Bainbridge Island, you know, like, where, can't we go somewhere else? But have you ever been on a vacation where you like you plan, you think it's awesome, and you go there? There was this vacation we had when I was a child. We went to a cabin. We thought it was going to be cool because it's a cabin. And, and the story we remember from this place is that all night we laid awake as rats ran off the loft, hit the floor, and ran hit the wall, right? Like, like that's, that's Nazareth, right? <laughs> where, where you show up and you're like, are we at the right place? And, and this was 30 years of Jesus' life. Like, do you get it? 
the choice of God anywhere he could go. And, and this has to refine, define the way we view the world. Where did God want to go? God wanted to go to Nazareth. That, that, if that doesn't define your theology, what will, right? That just kicks health and wealth gospel in the butt, right? When it's like, no, it's not about, it's not about what you have. It's about who you are. And that's what Jesus brought into this setting. <laughs> that Jesus could grow in wisdom, in maturity, in favor with God, I and mean, in Nazareth, right, in this place of rejection where no one wanted to go, where no one wanted to stay, and he stayed there, right? It wouldn't have proved the point if he went there and then he, like, got to 13 years old and ran away to Jerusalem to, like, start his own little Jesus cult, right? No, like, he grew in favor with God and men, allowed everyone to know him, right, at, a, at a, the age of 11, it says he went in to Jerusalem, they went in to give sacrifices, and he wowed the religious leaders with his knowledge. And then they went back, right? And he just keeps growing in favor with God and men, just submitting, obeying to his, his parents, living within the community, not trying to go to the city, be somebody, right? He, he went to Nazareth. Why? And, and the reason why is because God chose rejection. And he chose rejection, why? He chose rejection so he could relate with us in every single way and save us where we truly needed to be saved. So, we're going to plant the rest of our time here in Isaiah 53. And and it's going to show you kind of the prophecy that leads up to Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 53, it's, it's a couple books after Psalms. It's a big one, one of the major prophets. In Isaiah 53, speaking about Jesus, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord being... Jesus, right? Um, he grew up before him like a tender root, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrow. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. He, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of the people. He was stricken. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his day. And the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils among the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, what does the rejection of Jesus mean? Uh, three things, and then we're going to talk about the accept. What the rejection of Jesus means for him, and what that means for our acceptance. The first just is rejection. Simply means, I think, separation. Um, rejection simply means separation. Um, there was twice throughout the ministry of Jesus where he returns to Nazareth, it actually says going home. It's interesting. Like, like it really was his home. Whenever he went back, the, the Gospels say Jesus went home. And he preached there twice. Both times, he gets rejected. Right? One time, they try to kill him. One of the commentaries actually said the plainness of his speech aroused homicidal fury in the hearers. <laughs> and that was simply because Jesus read Isaiah to them and then said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, <laughs> right? And, and when he, he pulled out this book and he said, what you are hearing is now happening, what do they do? They fulfill it, right? By rejecting him again, right? So separation. So, so what I want to draw here is, is Jesus was rejected by the rejected, right? So it's this like double form of rejection that Jesus is going through, like, like, so Jesus goes home, and they reject him at his home. And, and so the separation that we feel in our lives that I think is the essence of rejection Jesus felt. That's what the rejection of Jesus meant. Sorrow. It says here he was a man of sorrow. <clears throat> What does that mean? To draw this out for you, and, and I'm going to quote a couple of times um, a, a, a book by the name of um, Brokenness to Community that, that some of the staff here have read. And, um, and Brokenness to Community is about a man who decided to, um, to have homes where those with severe brain damage could come live. And, and I think from quotes here, you will understand rejection, especially through sorrow and suffering, in a way that I couldn't articulate it very clearly. And this is what he writes in terms of Jesus being a man of sorrow. I want you to get how he related with people's sorrow. It says, For 25 years now I've had the privilege of living with men and women with disabilities. I've discovered that even though a person may have severe brain damage, that is not the source of his or her greatest pain. The greatest pain is rejection, the feeling that nobody really wants you like that. The feeling that you are seen as ugly, dirty, a burden of no value, that is the pain I've discovered at the heart of our people. Right? And, and that is, so when we see Jesus as a man of sorrow, he is taking this on. 
right? No one wants you like that, right? It's not merely he had sorrow because of suffering, which we'll look at next. It was sorrow because of rejection. It says, even Isaiah says, who has believed our message? They grew up among him. They saw him grow, but they rejected him. Because no one wanted him like that, right? They probably were like, man, Jesus, I remember when you were five years old and you were so sweet, but now you're talking about like fulfilling prophecies and things like that. And we just don't want that here, right? So the, the rejection expressed in him being a, a man of sorrows, um, very tangibly, he experienced that. Suffering, it says, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. In this book it says, the time I've spent with those who are disabled, have been teaching me that behind my need to win, there are my own fears and anguishes. The fear of being devalued or pushed aside, the fear of opening my heart up or being vulnerable or feeling helpless. I've discovered something which I had never been confronted with before, which was immense darkness in my own heart. At the particular moment of fatigue or stress, I saw the forces of hate rising up within me and the capacity to hurt someone who was provoking me. I saw the garbage within my own self. And this this experience of Jesus who, as, as he goes, lives in this village of rejection and, and along with them is, is suffering, suffering with the sufferer. Right? Um, in the book of Hebrews, there's this powerful verse, Hebrews 2, where it says, Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. For this reason, he was made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful priest. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? And so, when he he lived in this place, Nazareth, as he went on and even after that, um, suffered. And, and, and the, the words here in Hebrew are really important because it said suffered from temptation. We see suffering that he goes through on the cross and things like that. But the suffering of temptation, I think, is a really important one here to grab a hold of because, because as Jesus grew up, oftentimes we have this like real angelic view of him, right? We don't allow him humanity. And yet he's growing up in this village where people are rubbing off on each other. It's this village no one really wants to go to because it's kind of out in the, the boonies and stuff goes on there. I don't know. Right? Jesus suffering through the temptation and making the right choices. and He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with suffering. And that was the choice of Jesus to participate in it. That was the choice of Nazareth for Jesus. But my question is, what does that, that choice mean... Why did he do that? What does that choice mean for us? And just, just a couple of things. The first is that his, his separation meant an identification with us. Separation for him meant an identification with us. Um, so with separation, what you have essentially is the, um, you have two things 
that don't associate with one another, right? And I think for a lot of us, though we have in the Gospels the story of God come near, we don't really believe that he's near. We believe that God still, for some reason, and if you grab a hold of anything, grab a hold of this, we believe for some reason that God still stands far off. And we'll remind each other of our sins. And we'll say, Oh, Jesus is kind of still standing off until you figure that one out. Right? But, but what we have to understand from this is that God isn't standing far off. Jesus isn't standing far off. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. Right? But he's identifying with you in nearness. Jesus didn't grow up in an affluent home in Jerusalem and come in and save the day for Nazareth like, hey guys, don't worry, my presence here, my wealth and everything that I'm going to bring in is going to cure this place. No. The acceptance that he brought was his, his presence, him just being there, him growing up there, his, him identifying with those people that, that you can no longer say, Nazareth's no good. God would never go to Nazareth. Nazareth has a bunch of pagans in it. No, because God grew up in Nazareth. And that's cool. God grew up in Nazareth, identified with Nazareth, so God can identify with you. In the book, Brokenness Community, it says, when someone has lived, and, and listen so hard to this, this is so important, when someone has lived most of his or her life in the last place and then discovers that Jesus is in the last place, it is truly good news. However, when someone has always been looking for the first place and learns that Jesus is in the last place, it is terribly confusing. <sighs> So the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is in the last place with those people. That's why, and, and if you're still not believing me, I just want you to remember, Jesus grew up for 90% of his life in Nazareth. Right? Boom! <laughs> like, like that's, that's enough to realize that God identifies with us. The second place is, in our sorrow, he gives us perspective. Uh, in Isaiah 53, it says that he carried our sorrow. And what do I mean that he gives us perspective? I, I wrestled with saying perspective or peace. And what I mean by this is, is how, how does he carry our sorrow? Right? How does he carry our sorrow? When there's car wrecks and there's cancer and people we love pass away. How does Jesus, how does Jesus of Nazareth speak into that? And, and as I, I wrestled through that, I kept thinking, well, why? You know, it's, it's God's, it's Jesus. Why didn't he come? And, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's this five-year-old boy who just heals everybody in Nazareth. Right? Go to Nazareth. You'll never die. And is that what we want? And I, and I think sometimes in our rashness, that's what we think we want and that's what we think we need. That, that Nazareth could have just been this hub where no sickness, no death, no cancer, no tears. Right? All that happens in Nazareth. But that's not what happened. 
Right? God gives us perspective in Jesus. Where Jesus moved in, he grew in stature and wisdom. And, and, and so Jesus is offering us something different. And, and I want you to get this because, man, even in the recent weeks, you know, I think of Kristen losing her aunt in the car wreck. And oftentimes we can lash out and be like, why didn't God save her aunt? Why didn't God, right? And as we have Jesus growing up in Nazareth and he sees the suffering, he sees the sorrow around him, how is he interacting with that? And sometimes you see as Jesus goes through his ministry, sometimes you see, you see him healing people. You see him weeping over death and sorrow and suffering. You see him identifying, relating with it. And so now, if you see that, though, and you go, man, why doesn't God just cure all this? That's not his plan, right? What is his plan? His, his plan, I believe, is this. To carry our sorrow, to walk with us, to go with us. And the perspective is that this isn't it, right? Like, Jesus is along with us, identifying with us, allowing us to, to walk through these things with him. The perspective is that this is not home. This is not it. Though Nazareth was his temporary home, the whole goal of his life was to call people back into reconciliation with God. Right? It wasn't meant just so that, that everything, everyone could go to Nazareth because this was still, man, this world is still broken and he wants to draw us into relationship with himself. Right? And, and that's what we have to see as what he's calling us to. That's what we have to see as good. That's what we have to see as peace. There's a, there's a big, I had a Christian ethics class in my seminary. There's this big debate now, how do we deal with death? And, and I'm, you know, the concern was, we don't know how to deal with death as doctors, we don't know how to deal with death in church, right? Because <laughs> we all want to be like, no, it'll never happen. It, it will? <laughs> In this world of suffering. So, but but what, what does this book say? What does the presence of Jesus say to that? And, and I, think, I think this all speaks to it. What he says is, I'm, surely I'm with you. I'm going to carry your sorrow. By my wounds, you can be healed. Right? And, he, and he's giving us a perspective beyond the immediate, beyond the here and now. And we as Christians have to grab a hold of that. So you don't be alarmed when famine or persecution or sickness come. What is Jesus promising? He's promising himself. He's promising to walk with you through that. The last thing in the place of suffering is healing. And what does that healing mean? I said earlier, reconciliation is, recon- it is restoration and forgiveness. In the book I quoted earlier, um, Vanier, the author, says, My experience has shown that when we welcome people from this world of anguish, brokenness, and depression, when they gradually discover that they are wanted and loved as they are, that they have a place, then we witness a real transformation. I would even say a resurrection. So what's the healing that he is providing? When he, by his wounds, it says that we are healed. He's welcoming us to be restored. <laughs> Just as we see Jesus is human, showing us what it means to be human, we can have our humanity restored in him and be healed. For guilt 
and shame that we might carry because of the way we lived, he offers real forgiveness. And that's the beauty of the gospel. (laughs) That you don't have to carry things. That you can go to him and you have someone to go to and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And you have one who identifies with you because he was tempted. He wants to give you He gives you perspective, because it's not just the here and now. And he gives you healing, because he can be the one who speaks over you, I forgive you. And that forgiveness he offers isn't just temporary, it's something that's eternal. And that's the hope of Christmas. I think the thing that was most powerful for me as I studied for this sermon was the humility of the kingdom of God. And you hear this throughout the whole Bible. The humility of the kingdom of God and... um, even in, in later in the Bible, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you see Jesus building his kingdom in humility. And a lot of people missed out because they were constantly looking for first place. And Jesus was in last place. right? Building his kingdom from humility. Living in Nazareth for 90% of his life. So the humility of God means the restoration of humanity just as the rejection of God means the acceptance of us into a relationship with God. And that is, that is what Nazareth means when we see where Jesus grew up. So what does this mean for our church? Well, what this means for our church is that when we see people in the last place or the hurting place, they aren't in a forgotten place. That God remembers them, he loves them, and he's calling us to join him in going to the last place and loving those people and helping them see that their humanity can be restored, right? That there there can be dignity in their lives. In the book of Hebrews, it says, So Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his blood. Let us go outside the city gates with him. And so our call is to join Jesus the disciples of Jesus were called Nazarites sometimes. I think that's incredible. As the disciples follow him, they not only identified with his glory, they also identified with his rejection. And, and that's our call. So, I, I pray for us as a church that Um, that we will gain the humility and the humanity um, of Jesus this Christmas season and that that let your your generosity and the joy in your heart uh, be inspired because Jesus lived among us, um, both in the places, at the times, and with the people uh, that we might not want to associate with. And that's the beauty of the gospel. So, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll worship. God, we learned so much from this. Uh, and and God, I've, I've rejected people in my life that, because maybe it's uncomfortable for me or I don't want to be associated with them. And God, your gospel says something else. It talks about how you, you lived among people that other people wouldn't want to associate with and and it shows that the gospel, the good news, is, is way better even than, than we allow it to be often. 
I pray, God, that this message, that humility builds the kingdom, um, will be something that just makes us so pumped up, so excited, as we realize that you chose Nazareth to be in. God, we love you, and we love how you love us. Amen.